Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 23rd, 2022. A Sunday, school shut. Can't remember what Alice Cooper said about schools, but uh, certainly borrowing from his wisdom, they're not open on a Sunday. But we're talking schools today. We've done some shows before on schools. The assumption on education is that schools are good. Education is good because it brings people out of poverty. It, it makes them wiser, more mobile, more suited to the contemporary world. Did a show with Charlie Robertson, the... Uh, time-traveling economist, why education, electricity, and fertility are key to escaping poverty. So many people think of education as uh, a vehicle of social mobility. And most people, I think, seem to think that American education, American schools are failing. We've done a number of shows on that, one with Daniel Moak, for example. Um, he believes that America's war on schools is a result of 50 years of failed federal education reform. So Moat, like so many others in his book, From the New Deal to the War on Schools, looks at education in terms of the role of the government and the state, putting the wrong policies, the wrong amount of money. Uh, and this is a theme that we've covered in other shows as well with another education writer, Derek W. Black. He believes that the schoolhouse is burning and he has a book out called Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. He believes essentially that the American state has pillaged um, uh, the schools, uh, lack of investment, a kind of neoliberal assault. Uh, I've also done shows on the racial nature, the racist character of American schools with Leslie Fenwick, for example, a distinguished writer. She has a new book out, Jim Crow's Pink Slip. Um, but I wonder if there's another way of looking at uh, the crisis of Amer American education from the opposite end of um, the barrel, so to speak, from the point of view of unions and perhaps the dysfunctionality of American teachers' unions. My guest today, Michael T. Hartney, is a fellow at uh, the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and the author of an intriguing new book, How Policies Make interest groups. He's joining us from Menlo Park. Michael, um, can we blame the crisis of American schools pretty much on, on the unions? Are American teachers unions dysfunctional? Is that the real core of your book? Um, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I, I wouldn't blame the current state of American education on teachers unions. But what I would say is that the teachers unions are the interest group, the establishment interest group in American education that by far has the biggest veto power over efforts to enact radical reforms. And I think in order to appreciate that argument, one has to step back and think about the evolution of education systems in, in really any country, but particularly in advanced industrial democracies. And stepping back sort of at a 30,000 foot level, what you see is that there are mainly two important periods 
in the formation of education systems. And that is, there's the first period, the era of institutional formation in which governments invest large sums of money in creating a universal system of public education. Right, the New Deal model. Sure. For, and uh, the States, um, that took uh, shape during the progressive era when we rid the schools of a different type of politics, which was political corruption, where party you had to sort of go and beg party bosses to let you get a job in the school system. And so we, the progressives um, during that era of institutional formation got rid of that, and we really turned into more of a techno technocratic system, at least for the time, where we would ostensibly hire people based on merit, um, a civil service system, if you will. Um, and that system largely endured um, and, and many of its remnants still exist today. The uh, professional uh, superintendent appointed by a school board of five to seven members. Um, but the second major uh, period in the evolution of education systems in these advanced countries is really what we can refer to as an era of performance-based reform or the effort to bring about performance-based reforms. And in the lead-in, when you were talking about uh, some of the other examples of authors you've talked with, I think they would very much see those um, in a negative light um, as sort of this neoliberal reaction, uh, how you put it, um, to wanting to introduce accountability and sort of business norms into education in an effort to, um, to um, ensure that students were learning enough to compete in the global economy. But this wasn't just a reform movement that happened in the United States. I think this is something we can talk about happening in the aftermath of the 1970s on a more global level. Um, but um, in the United States, that manifested itself most prominently in um, the A Nation at Risk report that came out in 1983, which was uh, largely an indictment of the state of academic performance for America's high schools. And that reform movement led to a flurry of state legislative efforts to increase academic the rigor of academic standards, to make sure that in order to graduate, say, with a high school uh, degree, that you had to take a certain number of years of mathematics, uh, reading, language arts, to boost those um, across the states. And it ultimately led, though, um, in the 2000s, under the presidency of Barack Obama, to look more carefully at teachers. Um, this was coming on the heels of a decade of research that tended to find that the most influential school level factor in shaping student achievement, and I emphasize school level here, obviously we know a, a student's socioeconomic background, their family has the biggest impact on their academic performance. But within schools, uh, we came to learn from a, a, a wave of research that the quality of the child's classroom teacher was the biggest predictor of how they did. So what that led to was an evolution of that reform movement that began in 1983 to begin sort of squarely putting its policymaking effort on the eyes of how do we attract, retain uh, better teachers and ensure that the teachers that we do have are performing well. Um, and my argument in the book is that um, something that isn't talked about when you think about these two eras, that era of institutional formation in 1930, and then this kickoff of reformism in the 1980s is that what happened in between those two things was the creation or the manufacturing by government of the most influential interest group in the education space, that being the teachers union. So the book argues or explains um, that politicians in the 1960s and the 1970s in the United States effectively by adopting public sector collective bargaining subsidized the political power of teacher union interest groups 
And the consequences of that were tipping the balance of power in education politics in the direction of unions and against competing stakeholders like parents, students, taxpayers, supporters of this education reform movement. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a really interesting argument. You're, of course, part of the Hoover Institute, so you're probably a, on the conservative side of American politics, but there's certainly something in it. And it goes against the assumption most progressives have, probably including myself, that unions are by definition progressive. We've done all sorts of shows on that too, one with Sarah Horowitz, longtime labor organizer. She has an interesting new book out, Mutualism, Building the Next Economy from the Ground Up. Another labor you, you, uh, organizer, Daisy Pitkin, has been on the show, suggesting that it's women and minorities who are driving unions forward. She has a new book out on the line. But you're arguing, even though you're a conservative, I think you're arguing that that teachers unions are deeply conservative, that they're not doing the business of the progressive, even if you may not be necessarily sympathetic to that. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm building on the work of uh, a political scientist here at Stanford, Terry Moe, um, who's also at the Hoover Institution, but interestingly enough, would not describe himself as a conservative other than perhaps on this issue. Would and you, by the way, are you, do you think of yourself as a conservative? I would say I'm on, I'm probably on the center right, um, but let's put it this way: um, any Republican I voted for in a primary probably got one percent in the last fifteen years. Um, that's kind of a good way to sum up my politics. So people like John Huntsman, uh, you know, the, the folks that John Kasich, the folks that no one in in, in the in the Republican Party really uh, likes anymore. Um, but I think that this this issue of teachers unions really um, goes far beyond right left politics, other than I can understand today it's seen that way. But remember, um, the union's biggest foe in the 2000s wasn't a conservative Republican. It was President Barack Obama, who uh, was a strong advocate of charter schooling, who believed deeply in efforts to try and ensure that there was more equity in the distribution of highly effective teachers, which meant tackling the legacy of some of these outdated teacher evaluation systems um, that unions, because of their devotion to the principle of seniority in collective bargaining, had become very tethered to. So I, I think that the, despite the fact that Trump disrupted all of this, the education reform movement going back into the 1980s has been a very bipartisan. Right. So uh, you, you've turned the... The way most people think about it is on his head. Most people believe that interest groups create policies. You believe that policies make interest groups. So you're suggesting that the kind of unions that Randy Weingarten runs, this uh, American Federation of Teachers, doesn't get a lot of great press, highly conservative, reactionary, um, has a sort of a ghettoized uh, perspective on the world, that this is a consequence of failed policies. Is that true. So you're not so much bashing unions as policies. I'm arguing that teachers unions have outsized power in American education because governmental policies enabled that to happen. I think traditionally when political scientists think about the interest group landscape or our political system more generally, one thinks that um, power uh, ought to ebb and flow based in some way on what uh, the public is demanding from policymakers to happen. But my argument is that when you adopted public sector collective bargaining in the 1960s and 1970s, something fundamentally changed in American education, which was that in states that did that, and about 34 of them did it, that what changed was that legally, 
in our interest group landscape, teachers unions and teachers unions alone were given a seat at the policymaking table uh, permanently. So, you know, to give you the best example of that in the most contemporary sense, just go back to the debates over reopening schools during the pandemic. Um, legally, in states that had mandatory collective bargaining, school boards and superintendents, there was one interest group that they had to consult with to make reopening decisions, and that was the teachers' unions. They had to hash out memorandum of understanding on what um, policies and procedures would look like. And some people might argue, and I, I can understand the argument, well, you know, labor ought to have a say in its working conditions. But on the other hand, if the balance of power tilts too far such that labor can be a veto point, um, which I think a fair reading of the evidence in the pandemic era shows that in large school districts with very powerful teachers unions, students didn't return to the classroom for well over an entire academic year, which, um, you know, you had the director of the CDC under President Biden now, Rochelle Walensky, um, was saying that it wasn't necessary uh, for vaccines to be fully the, the, the two models is is the DeSantis versus the, the Newsom model. It may even play out in the, in the next presidential election. Um, Michael, talk a little bit about um, state and local control of, of education. Is it true that before the New Deal, schools were pretty much controlled on a very local level. And, and and from your point of view, is that a good or a bad thing? Should we be nostalgic for that? Um, I don't necessarily think so. Um, we had other problems then. I mean, if you- No, I know. I'm not, I'm not idealizing uh, the well, era of Jim Crow in any way. But well, I, mean, I wasn't even thinking of that. I mean, by other problems, I meant that we had um, 130,000 school districts in this country compared to about 14,000 today, but we had school boards that had 50, 60, 70 members in some cities. I mean, they were unwieldy. They basically um, engaged in, um, well, not partisan politics as we would think about it today. They engaged in a sort of um, uh, politics uh, that was based on patronage. Um, well, wasn't that a kind of Tocquevillian notion of local politics? Isn't that what makes American democracy so democratic? except for one major problem, which is that what we wanted as a society for schools to do uh, in the post-1980s era was fundamentally different than what we expected them to do in 1930 in an industrialized economy. I mean, we were hoping that students would go to school and graduate high school, um, but there was no idea that they needed to go on to college or be prepared for a different sort of career in a globalized economy. So I think that's part of the issue is the, is what's so disruptive about this education reform movement in the early 1980s is it's bringing attention to the fact that there's a need um, for reconfiguring schools uh, to meet all sorts of objectives that you wouldn't have tried to do in the 1930s. So uh, part of the argument is that we were still left with the remnants of that ossified political system that the progressives handed down. And then, of course, I also argue that the teachers unions had learned how to master uh, the governance structures uh, that the progressives left in their wake of, um, you know, the reforms of school board elections being held at odd times of the year when turnout is really low. Mm. Um, the fact that we have nonpartisan school board elections, which um, solved one problem of the patronage based era, but created another problem where candidates who run without party labels, voters don't know much about where they stand. So, for example, just to give you a very clear data point there, my research and other research indicates that teachers unions tend to win 
about seven out of every 10 competitive school board elections under this system of nonpartisan, oddly timed school board races. So I think that, that those are important data points because they speak to the question of how democratic mm. is our education system when a single interest group is so dominant in low turnout elections. Michael, what about the, the cultural element here? I don't always like bringing up the Scandinavians, but in this context, it's unavoidable. So many books have been written about the idealizing Scandinavian political social democratic system. I'm rather skeptical of a lot of them. But in the one area, it seems to make sense is when it comes to teachers, particularly the Finnish model. Someone wrote a book comparing Finnish teachers, I mean, Korean teachers and American teachers. And certainly for complicated reasons, the Finns reward their teachers. They find the best graduates. They pay them properly. They look after them. Isn't the problem in America not so much teachers' unions, but teachers themselves. They're badly paid. The smart people don't go into teaching. It's viewed as a as a as a, a a bad job. No one respects them. So it naturally attracts people who are uh, not really particularly invested in, in in becoming good teachers. So if we had in America, for example, Finnish quality teachers, then wouldn't the unions be better, more progressive, more open-minded, more beneficial to society? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think one of the places to start is, is um, you're rightly hitting on this very important issue on how culture, um, culture around how a society values education, for example, or values its teachers, intersects um, with politics and the type of institutions that a given country uses um, to govern its education system. So one thing I would just say at the outset is um, it is oftentimes pointed out that other countries, uh, Sweden, Finland, um, have unionized teachers and their education systems produce pretty good outcomes. And they're able to, as you point out, recruit the top one third uh, of their graduates to go into the field of teaching. Um, but one thing I would note is that a major difference is that in a lot of the European countries that have teachers unions and do pretty well, the way that collective bargaining works is quite different. The, this really relates back to the question you just asked about decentralization. We actually have kind of the worst of both worlds. We have both elements of centralization and mm. elements of decentralization. In a lot of those other countries where unions uh, coexist with high performing school performance, you have a system where there's a, a single minister of education at the national country level that sits down with the uh, equivalent of our Randy Weingarten and hashes out a deal. If it were about COVID reopenings, they'd make a single deal. Um, it would be covered widely by the news media. Uh, and there's a lot of incentive for both actors to engage in reasoned, disciplined debates based on the evidence. We don't have that. We have 14, not 14,000 because they're not all unionized, but we have thousands upon thousands of local union leaders that go around negotiating uh, their collective bargaining contracts very much out of the sunlight with lay school boards uh, that are not particularly sophisticated. So we don't have the same sort of labor system. That's the first thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is you're absolutely right here. We face a very different challenge. If you go to uh, Asia, you brought up um, I think you brought up Korea, but certainly there are Asian. Um, Taiwan, I'm sure as well. Taiwan's always in the positive camp. Yeah. Right. And, and one of the things that we unfortunately can't free ride on the way they can is that in their in their countries, culturally, um, uh, teaching is regarded as a very um, uh, prestigious profession. 
Um, and that uh, in the United States, unfortunately, prestige um, correlates so highly with the almighty dollar. Um, now, there are some things we could do about that, but one of the problems is in the United States, we've invested in a system of teacher quantity, not a system of teacher quality. And what I mean by that is if you look at education spending adjusted for inflation in the United States over the last 30 years, it's gone up dramatically. But teachers in this country are absolutely right to be frustrated by the fact that their wages have been stagnant when you control for inflation. So the unions have a really good point there. But at the same time, they have vigorously argued for hiring more adults in the buildings, not just teachers, paraprofessionals, custodians, bodies, union members. And you can't have it both ways. If you go to some of these other Asian countries, they will tolerate higher class sizes in many of their upper level grades in exchange for being able to pay their teachers more. If you hire more teachers and have super low class sizes, you have more people to pay. But if teachers take on more students, uh, then you can pay teachers more. So I am sympathetic to arguments that teachers ought to be paid more. But I think when it comes to, and I'm not saying that all politicians are out there being really innovative about this. I think uh, both parties, politicians could be a lot better um, in terms of coming up with different ways to compensate the educator workforce. But what I will argue is it's sort of like the transition costs that you talk about when you think of trying to reform America's social security system. We know the system isn't running as effectively as it could be, but we have all of these seniors that are uh, recently retired that are going to defend the current system and any sort of evolution. How do you deal with those transition costs? Well, we have the same problem when it comes to the education workforce in the United States. Um, gone are the days where you have teachers that are going to enter the career, uh, many of them, for 30 or 40 years, let alone to stay in the same school district. But so much of the way in which we compensate teachers is wedded to that old style model where uh, compensation is backdated to pensions and other post-retirement benefits. When young, the smartest young people who are graduating today don't want that. They want higher starting salaries. Many of them, the highest aptitude graduates, want to be rewarded for their performance, but we, we continue to rely on this really outdated system that's based on steps and lanes. And I'm not going to argue that there aren't some pockets of um, innovation or calls for innovation among teachers unions. I think there's a handful of leaders out there um, in certain AFT local districts that have said we should rethink some of this, but by and large, because of the nature of being a union, unions have had to be very slow to want to move away from any of the existing systems because so many of their members have come to rely on a guaranteed pay raise for the master's degree, the step and lane system. And it's understandable, right? I mean, those people have been promised those things, but right. at the same and, time, uh, yeah, really and I mean, I guess Wine Garden by definition is, is doing what her members want or her members are doing what she wants. Uh, but she could have been an invention of Fox news. Fox loves uh, this whole debate. I, every, you know, I, doing some research every time you put fox and education is you get these sorts of headlines about everyone leaving the unions teacher union work ha working hand in hand with democrats you know biden seems to be in the old school he calling on educators and union leaders to keep moving the nation forward classically kind of meaningless biden-esque language his wife is a former school teacher you wrote an interesting piece on Ron DeSantis and education. DeSantis, uh, as you suggested, runs Florida. Florida offers the alternative to the Californian wine garden system. Could education, Michael, become a big issue in 2024? Is it just kind of boring? 
I wouldn't bet on it. Um, I think at the state and local level, certainly, I think it really mattered in the Virginia gubernatorial election. But for good reasons, I don't think Americans, and I also don't think my book has some evidence on this, I also don't think that teachers and their unions um, really focus in on federal, uh, I mean, they're involved in federal elections, but where they really spend their time in political capital is on state and local elections, since obviously those uh, in our system are the ones that have most of the power over it. For those, I mean, we've done shows about how at the state and local level now increasingly reflect the federal level with the ideological cleavage between right and left. Uh, so presumably there's not that much of a difference between the kinds of conversations happening locally and at the state level and at the national level. But it can really matter in primaries. So the unions on their side have a lot of incentive to try and make sure that the right Democrats are nominated, not the Obama type Democrats who favor charter schools and favor teacher evaluation reforms um, and instead very labor friendly candidates are elected. So I think it can still matter. And I also think on the Republican side, we assume um, and, and for good reason, because we see people like former Governor Scott Walker, Wisconsin, who sought to break the teachers unions um, there. Chris Christie's another good example. We assume that all state elected officials on the Republican side get up in the morning thinking about union breaking in the way that a, a Scott Walker or Chris Christie did. But in reality, it's a little more complicated there because remember, most suburban Republican voters are pretty satisfied with their schools. And so why, if you were a suburban state legislator who's a Republican, would you spend most of your time antagonizing the teachers in your district when you could potentially get them to vote for you on other issues and your constituents don't really care about urban education reform? So the politics subnationally are a little more textured, I think. You're talking to me from Menlo Park. Um, you're, 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 uh, you're at the Hoover Institute. The local high schools in Palo Alto, Menlo Park, are incredibly good, um, same as in Berkeley and other uh, wealthy neighborhoods in the Bay Area, and I think the same is true on the East Coast. To what extent does public education and even the teaching system, how much does that reflect this increasing kind of feudalization of American life between these pockets of incredible affluence and general poverty and the disappearance of a middle class? Um, well, one thing that I um, tend to push is the is, is that, yes, you can't deny that the test scores at Palo Alto's high school are significantly better than if you were to go to East Palo Alto or Oakland or a much more impoverished uh, part of the country. But um, education reformers, in my view, have made a mistake um, in not highlighting the fact that that does not mean that the actual inputs of schools are highly effective. So I live the most of the year, um, I'm out here for a period of time, but I live most of the time in Brookline, Massachusetts. And every time I tell someone that, they say the schools are great there. And my response is, well, how do you know the schools are great? How do you know that the schools are actually churning out more uh, knowledge and learning among students? Or is it the fact that the types of people who choose to locate and live in that school district happen to be the children of the world's leading epidemiologists or people who work in the area that are very smart that invest in their kids' education. The point I'm just trying to make here is that we've made an unfortunate pivot. We made an unfortunate choice um, with the No Child Left Behind Act. We're trying to rectify this, uh, though, at a decent. That was Bush. I mean, that wasn't absolutely. But the mistake that was made was that we use student proficiency, that is, what percentage of students do well on these tests 
as the measure for whether schools were highly effective or not, when what we should have been using were more sophisticated value-added measures, which is um, if John uh, enters school in fourth grade, how much did he learn between fourth and fifth grade? And I think that's something that we really need to um, impress upon policymakers because it's also more fair to teachers. I mean, if you were a teacher in a school district that had disadvantages, you would want to be judged based on how much you helped your kids improve, not simply where they were when they came to you. We right. wouldn't call a bad doctor who happens to work in a hospital with a lot of high poverty patients. You, you mentioned charter schools. You seem to be in favor of them. You suggest Obama was, the unions are against them. Why are the unions against charter schools? Well, they tend to be unionized, not universally so. Um, you mean and, that it's illegal to be a union member in a charter school? Oh, no, it's not illegal to be a member, but in terms of collective bargaining um, in certain states, uh, charter schools, um, even if they either don't have collective bargaining or if there is collective bargaining in the state, the charter school's charter gives it flexibility to not have to go along with some component of the collective bargaining contract. And the best example of this would be giving the charter school more flexibility, say, around the work schedule. I mean, Charter school, the success that urban charter schools like Ava Moskowitz's Success Academy in New York City, KIPP schools, I mean, it's not a secret sauce. What they largely do is they have kids go to school for longer. They accelerate learning. But in order to do that, you have to have an adult who's working more hours in the building. You have to have a school calendar that looks very different. Well, those charter school leaders don't have to sit down and do what, um, I don't know if you saw this story in Los Angeles recently, but the new superintendent there who came in from Miami, Alberto Carvalho, he got into a big fight with the teachers unions um, and ultimately lost um, over the fact that he tried to add three volunteer days to the school calendar to make up for COVID learning loss. Those debates aren't fought in these charter schools because the charter schools have a certain flexibility. So, so just explain, so if it, do the charter schools shop for the best quality teachers? Do they tend to pay teachers better or, or do you think they're more, I mean, I, I guess if we had a union person on, someone like Wangarden, they might suggest that the charter schools are more exploitative of teachers. But from a teacher's point of view, um, if you were choosing between teaching at a charter school and a state school, uh, what's the better deal? I think it's a different deal for different types of teachers. So they're, the charter schools use a different model of human capital, which is that they rely heavily on much younger teachers mm. who are drawn to the charter school, not because it pays more, because it doesn't. It typically, oftentimes, it's on the same salary schedule as the teachers in the public district where it's located. Um, but what it uses is it uses mission. It says, here's a chance for you to spend a few years of your career early on um, serving kids in the, in the mission of social justice. I mean, charter schools are not, um, uh, the entrepreneurs in the charter school world do not come out of the right wing world. They come out of a social justice orientation, um, but they're obsessed with uh, the college and career readiness of um, underserved uh, Conservatives have embraced charter schools. I mean, DeSantis is a big fan, the evangelical movement are big supporters of, of charter schools. So it's not just the civic left. Well, I'm talking about the people who work in the schools. Oh. Uh, yes, you're certainly right in terms of the people who support the policies. But what I'm arguing is that the conservatives who support the idea of charter schools are supporting them because they like the idea of market competition in the education space, schools competing for students. But the people who work in charter schools like being there because they like the mission of the school. And I think a lot of the teachers like the flexibility um, that the school has 
um, in ways that traditional school districts don't. So finally, uh, Michael, I'm assuming for you, the fix to all these problems with the American education system, it, uh, more charter schools, less power to unions, more collective bargaining with all the interest groups taking power away from the unions. Is that fair? Well, I don't think any of it's a panacea, but I do think that um, I sort of conclude the book by making the following point, which I don't think is especially controversial. Um, and that is that we need to rethink what we mean when we talk about democracy and education. You know, let me tip my hat to the unions on one thing. They did something important. Historically, the voice of teachers was completely not part of the equation in education policymaking. We relied on low paid, largely female teachers who weren't able to go into other professions. In some ways, the system benefited from that because female teachers who went to the best schools, the smartest, went into education. Um, that changed. And teachers unions played a role in giving voice to teachers. And I think that teachers unions have always been in the vanguard of defending the procedural, what I call in the book, the procedural side of democracy. So an elected school board, they have a lot of reverence for those traditional institutions. That's why they're skeptical of for-profit education choice and the like. But I think there's another side of democracy that they often forget about, which is responsiveness. And when you have so many education reform proposals out there that are supported by large numbers of people, I mean, just look at polling data and you ask the public, how should teachers be paid? The public does not believe they should be paid simply on a step and lane system for existing in the system year after year. So democracy also requires responsiveness is what I argue. And if the policies that govern education are not reflective of what the majority of voters want, then teachers unions can't just bury their heads in the sand about that or else they get what we've seen during COVID, which is huge disenrollments in the traditional system and parents voting with their feet to move to private charter or homeschool. Right, and that's, and, that's the right, and that's the real tragedy is, you know, I buy your argument on charters, but a lot of people are gonna be listening or watching this debate. I don't know if, do you have kids? No. Well, I do, and I went through this, and my whole generation, everyone I know went through it. And we, we want to believe in the public education system, then we send our kids to it. We find that it, for one reason or other, it's profoundly dysfunctional. So we choose to take our kids out, not to charter schools, but to private schools. So uh, the real casualty of this is, again, this cleavage between an increasingly underfunded, dysfunctional public education system and high quality private schooling. Is, is that your conclusion too? Um, I think I would uh, agree with most of it. I might quibble a bit on the underfunding. Um, and, and part of that's the big challenge is that- Or misfunded, look, maybe not so much. That's fine, yeah. But I mean, one of the big issues moving forward is you look at a district like Chicago, they've hemorrhaged enrollment, but their spending keeps going through the roof because of a lot of their pension commitments. So we're gonna have to do something to address that. This has probably put you off having kids, Michael, is it? <laughs> no, it's that I live in too expensive of an area. <laughs> well, it's an interesting argument. It's counterintuitive in some ways, but it's an interesting take, certainly on the teachers union that many progressives, I think, are ambivalent about. Michael T. Hart and his new book, How Policies Make Interest Groups. It's more interesting than it sounds from the title. Did you come up with that title, Michael? Yeah, it's, it's the... Um unfortunate consequence of uh, being on the tenure track. You know, you don't want to choose too saucy of a title. It's a reference to another important book written in the field called How Policies Make Citizens, 
uh, but yeah. instead looking at the interest group side of the policy feedback equation. Well, it's an interesting, uh, it's certainly a, a very important issue. So congratulations on the book. Uh, and I hope it helps you get tenure at uh, Boston College or Hoover or wherever. What else are you reading these days, Michael? What helps you make sense of the world? I hope it's not just books about unions. And no, stuff. by far not. Um, a book that I really recommend that I think is um, probably the most fairly written account um, on the, the sort of high performing charter school world is a book by Robert Pondicio called How the Other Half Learns. And Robert has uh, worn many hats in the education world, but the book is essentially um, his write-up of having embedded himself in Ava Moskowitz's Harlem Success Schools for over a year. Um, and it has a lot of counterintuitive takes. It's not a chartered cheerleading story by any means, but it's also uh, not a screed against them. Um, another book uh, that I've started is by my colleague here, uh, Neil Ferguson, um, yeah, Neil's being on the show. Yeah, it's the book Doom, The Politics yeah. of Catastrophe, because my next book will be on the politics of COVID school closures. Uh, and the last book um, is a book called Lost Classroom, Lost Community, which um, is a, a very careful empirical look at the consequences, not just for education outcomes, but for community outcomes in areas of Chicago where Catholic schools closed over the last 20 years, Catholic schools that serve predominantly very low income, mostly racial minoritized uh, communities. And that's by Nicole Garnett, who's at uh, the University of Notre Dame Law School.